So this Easter, God's been really drawing my attention to why we call the worst Friday that's ever happened in all of history good. My first slide, why, why do we call the worst Friday in all of history Good Friday? No suffering has ever been so undeserved. No human has been ever treated so unjustly. All because no human has ever deserved so much and been given so little. No horror surpasses what happened on that hill 2,000 years ago. Yet we call the worst Friday in all of history good. It's this paradoxical idea that runs throughout a lot of the Bible, um, this idea of the upside-down kingdom. It's more blessed to give than receive. We become great by becoming small. The first will be last. There's richness in having nothing, strength in weakness. We live by dying, and there is triumph in defeat. So in this way, we're going to have a look at the last kind of two chapters of Matthew's gospel before leading up to the crucifixion. I'm sure your reading is full. There's like four pages there. And as we've been heading up to the tomb over these last few weeks and maybe months, it's here that we finally arrive at the cross. And we're tracing this paradoxical upside down theme that starts all the way in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. Oh, I don't, just realized I don't have a clicker. If you're happy to do the slides, that's great, but thanks. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So we've got a ton of reading here, two huge chapters, but we're literally going to walk through it all. That's why we don't have a reading, because it would take a long time. We're going to literally walk through it all together, and we're looking at the three groups of people that Jesus was surrounded by. Three groups of people that all were working together to make this day evil. Yet despite all their best efforts, despite everything they do, God is at work. God is sovereign and he makes this day good. So there's a little bit of a warning here. There's lots of passage. We're going to be dealing with lots of different characters here. But I really want us to understand why these people are doing what they do. It's going to be a little bit dark as we walk through. There's some pretty heavy things going on here, but I want us to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. God is doing something stunning in the darkness. So let me just pray as we get into it. God, as we come together today reflecting on the death of your son, we are eager to hear from you. You get to understand what it means that Jesus died on a cross for us 2,000 years ago. We ask that you would show us a clearer, fuller, deeper understanding of who you are, of your radical love towards us. Amen. So as we come to these last final few moments before the crucifixion, Matthew's gospel shows us these three groups, and it's really clear to see them in the readings. And the first group that we have here is the Jewish community, the Pharisees. The religious leaders are the ones that have memorized the Old Testament. They're waiting and watching for the Messiah. These are the guys who should have been most equipped, most aware of God's voice, ready to hear and see the Messiah. But as we know, they're the first ones to try to kill him. To give us a little bit of background, Jesus' complicated history with the Pharisees starts a little while before Jesus is physically on the scene. Around like 60 years before Jesus is around, the Romans kind of take over Judea and 
the Romans are well known for making the people they take over assimilate to their culture. So the Pharisees have kind of brokered this awkward peace treaty with them, trying to allow the Jews to live their way and Romans to kind of occupy and watch over them. And in the years before Jesus comes, there's all these uprisings and revolutions. The Jewish people keep trying to rise up against Rome. And the Pharisees are really worried because if Rome sees this place as too much of a problem, they're just going to come in and wipe them all out. So the Pharisees are wanting to maintain this kind of comfortable peace treaty that they have, this fortunate power position that they've found themselves in. And they see Jesus and they're worried. And practically we see it, it's not too bad starting off. Uh, Matthew 9, 11 just says that the Pharisees saw what Jesus was doing and they were just asking questions. I don't think the click is working. Thank you. The Pharisees saw and were just confused. They were, they were puzzled. It's like, what is Jesus actually doing? Who is this guy? But it kind of quickly evolves in Matthew 9. Uh, and a demon-oppressed man comes to Jesus. He, he heals him. He drives the demon out. And the people are amazed. They're wondering what's going on, and the Pharisees say it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to be like, oh, no, that guy's not really good. But as it continues, they they can't just kind of theologically dispel what Jesus is doing. It keeps going, and and it's funny to see what actually happens and what triggers it over. It's, It's the Sabbath. It's Jesus teaching on what the law really means. Jesus first says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And we see here, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, something that the Pharisees didn't like happening. It's crazy, right? But the Pharisees went out and plotted about how they might kill Jesus. Jesus is gaining momentum. People love him. People love what Jesus is doing, rising up behind him. And the Pharisees are worried about Rome coming in and killing this revolution. So they plot about how they might kill Jesus. And we have the triumphal entry. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And this is our first reading in the, in the pamphlet that you have there. The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priests, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. With this slightly complicated backstory, we, we see the first group of people that are working to make this day evil. These Jewish leaders, desperate to maintain power, their comfortable position, are willing to kill Jesus. And we know that they do everything in their power to do it, but they get help in the most tragic of places. As the passage continues, we we see Jesus in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they... They were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, John's version of the gospel is a little bit more specific in this bit and he singles out Judas. He says, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, was the one who said, why isn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth about a year's wages. But it also tells us that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but he himself was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was in it. If we look at the flow of the story, it's, it's a bit more obvious what's going on. The, the, the Pharisees are looking for someone to betray Jesus. Matthew shows us this story of how Judas is ready to betray Jesus, obsessed with money as Larry just shared in communion. And then the very next bit, and I'm sure you can read it there in verse 14, 
One of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me, over, give me if I deliver him over to you? So they gave him the 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas wanted to make this day for evil because he was obsessed with money. He was greedy. He was so blinded by the immediate, by the money that he could get, that he couldn't see how beautiful Jesus was. The Pharisees betrayed Jesus for power. Judas betrayed Jesus for money. And before we move on to our third group, uh, if we follow the chapter, it shows us that Judas wasn't the only disciple that actually really let Jesus down. They have their last supper, they're reclined around the table, lying down on pillows like Rick shared with us beautifully a couple of weeks ago. And when they're all done, they get up and they leave for the Mount of Olives, like Larry shared with us last week. And as they're up on the way to the Mount of Olives, this is what the passage right here. Jesus says, this, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. But we see Peter reply, even if all of the others fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And just as the end of this chapter reveals to us, and as Jesus must have known, he must have been feeling, Peter lied right there. He didn't follow through with this promise. None of the disciples followed through with this promise. They all scatter. But as they move to Gethsemane, it gets even worse. Jesus expresses his intense anguish to his disciples. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He asks his friends for help. He begs. He expresses that he feels like dying. But his friends fall asleep on him twice. They can't even stay awake for an hour. Can you stop and and imagine the pain that Jesus must have been going through right here? One of his best friends, the 12, has just betrayed him. The Jewish people are out hunting him down, looking for an opportunity to kill him. And the other 11 that have stayed faithful so far, these people he's invested his like three years of ministry into have just fallen asleep on him twice. Especially after he has expressed, I feel like dying. Stay and watch with me. Because we don't have enough time, we're kind of going to jump into the next chapter, but just as a summary so we know where it kind of goes from here, the big story, we see the result of Judas's betrayal. The, the Pharisees, the mob, comes and arrests Jesus. We see the Jewish people put on this kind of like false trial. They, they find false testimony all over the place. They're trying to criticize Jesus, find flaws in him, doing whatever they can to accuse him. We see Peter go against his promise. We see Peter deny Jesus three times. And devastatingly, we even read the story of Judas changing his mind, regretting what he's done, going back to the priests to try to make it right, giving them back the money, but we know that he seeks redemption in the wrong place. He tries to fix his problem rather than asking Jesus for forgiveness, and we see that he ends up hanging himself. It's so dark. It's miserable, and the most beautiful, good person that has ever walked the earth is just, his life is covered, his life is surrounded by darkness. He's alone, his community is against him, his best friends have all left him. 
and I hate to say it, but it gets worse. We meet the third group of people working to make this day evil, the worst day in all history, and it's Jesus before Pilate. And at first, for a moment, it kind of looks good. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. When Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, I want to focus on those last few words, and I want to think about why was Pilate greatly amazed? What does that mean? A few other translations translate that word as surprise, but as you can see, I uh, did a quick Google search, literally copy-pasted the, the Greek thesaurus here, or Greek dictionary. I'm no scholar of biblical language, but I think we're on really good footing to see marvel, wonder, admire. Pilate saw something beautiful. He saw something amazing. He saw something unique in Jesus. And commentary I read says that the Roman governor in all of his experience had never beheld such calm resignation, such intrepid resolution in the, faith of death, in the face of death. Pilate was genuinely impressed by Jesus. The other gospels have Pilate saying, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate, it says in verse 18, Pilate knew that it was for envy that the, the Pharisees had delivered Jesus up to him. Verse 19 even says that Pilate's wife calls him righteous. And there's this beautiful opportunity that Pilate has to either release the notorious prisoner Barabbas or Jesus. And it looks good because Pilate knows that Jesus is good. He knows that he should release Jesus. But Pilate had the power to stop it all, but he was weak. He was too afraid of displeasing people. His desire for people to like him overcame his duty, his role of doing the right thing. To the next verse, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. The ESV says, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. Pilate betrayed his role because he was gaining nothing. He allowed for Jesus to be killed because he was too concerned with what he could gain. He, didn't, he wasn't there to protect the innocent, to do his job, to fulfill his duty. Pilate was people-pleasing. He was playing politics. So finally, at the end of this dark chapter, we see Jesus mocked. We see him beaten. We see him whipped. We see him carry his own cross up to the hill, and we see him killed. We see Jesus up on the cross, this ancient, horrific mode of torture. The only one who has ever walked this earth pure, blameless. But the Jewish people, Judas and Pilate, all work together, killing the Son of Man while they seek power and money and human praise. Now, I didn't include this group at the start, but... If we're really honest with ourselves, I wonder if you can see that you are not that unlike these three groups. We're not that unlike the Jewish leaders that are afraid of the Romans, wanting to hold on to our own sense of control in this world. 
our sense of control and rejecting Jesus. We're not that unlike Judas who's so in love with money, who's obsessed with the things of this world, the immediate things right in front of us that we're blind to seeing Jesus. We're not that unlike Pilate who's so obsessed with human praise, impressing people, keeping our approval rating high, that even though he sees no fault in Jesus, he's impressed, he's amazed, he's he's too concerned with people to make the right choice. While it's so easy to sit back comfortably and point the finger at these groups and say, how dare you kill the son of man? It's really confronting for me to think about what I would have done in their shoes. Maybe I would have chased power. Maybe I would have chased comfort or pleasure. I do these things literally all the time. Maybe I would have given into the things I'm afraid of or chased the things that I want or just chased popular opinion. And I want to wonder what group do you most relate to of these three? And I only ask this because when we choose to prioritize the things that these three groups prioritize, we betray the Son of God, we betray Jesus, and we miss out on treasuring him. So what's your priority? Is your priority power, or is it possessions, or is it praise? And regardless of what we think we would have done in this situation, the Bible makes it outstandingly clear that we are implicit in this day. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Galatians 1.4, he gave, him up, he gave himself up for our sins. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The Bible is full of making sure that we know that Jesus died in our place. It is for our sin that Jesus died. We can say that those three groups put Jesus up there, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're included in that. But in the middle of this dark day, in the middle of absolute misery and torment, there is incredible news for us. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Though these stories show evil motives, human, the worst of humankind, it is beautifully contrasted by the radical love and how different God is from us. God is at work doing his greatest good in our most terrible evil. And it starts knowing that even though it looks like these three groups took control of the end of Jesus' life and decided that he was going to the cross, we know that this was God's plan from the beginning. I love that prophecy that Larry shared in communion, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah is hundreds of years before this. God knew this plan was coming, and immediately after the crucifixion in Acts 2, the disciples knew what was going on. Luke writes how Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Two chapters later, we see the disciples praying that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Read these verses. How stunning are they? It is stunning that Jesus, God, had planned this predestined it from the beginning of time that this is what was going to happen. 
Even though it looks like evil is abounding, God has a plan in it. God's sovereign hand was over Jesus' death. It wasn't a mistake. So as we look at the three groups again, I want to understand what Jesus was doing in each group. Even though the Jewish leaders condemn and they criticize because they seek control, they look for every possible flaw. They look to expose weakness and attack, to prey on the weak. In this evil day, we see Jesus cover our every flaw. We see that he accepts us in weakness, that he takes our punishment. Whether we know it or not, we all fear that our imperfections make us unacceptable. And maybe you've never realized this, but you crave knowing that our perfect and holy God accepts you. Jesus going to the cross in your place screams louder than anything else in this, ever, this world ever will that he loves you. He doesn't seek to expose your every flaw, but he seeks to cover them. Romans 3, 23 to 25, and it's such a famous verse, passage. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. By faith we have atonement. We have righteousness. We are justified. We are redeemed. The opposite of what the Pharisees are trying to do, criticize, is happening here. Although the Pharisees criticize, Jesus justifies. Number two, Judas betrays because he loves money. And Peter betrays because he's afraid. They prize what is useful to them. They're fickle, they change depending on what's convenient, depending on the circumstance. But in this evil day, we see that Jesus is faithful beyond all circumstances. He prizes us while we're still his enemies. Regardless of our usefulness, he offers adoption as sons and daughters. The death of Jesus proves his love to us. In Jesus, you have someone that you can undoubtedly trust because you know how much he loves you. Galatians 2.20, Paul says that the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you don't live your life in faith, you don't really understand what Jesus has done here. You have assurance, you can know how much he loves you. And this radical faithfulness is shown so beautifully to Peter, as Rick shared a couple of weeks ago in his sermon. If you didn't catch it, I really recommend going back and listening to it. We see that Peter, although he's betrayed Jesus, although he's denied him three times, when he comes back to Jesus, Jesus simply reinstates him. There's no punishment, there's no criticism. Jesus reinstates Peter. He's welcomed back. We need to know that no matter how much we've done, no matter how much you've done, Jesus is waiting with arms wide open, ready to reinstate you. He is faithful to you and he loves you. Number three, Pilate is passive because he is people-pleasing. Pilate neglects his role. He fails to do what he is called to do because he's playing politics. 
is too concerned with human praise. But once again, in this evil day, we see Jesus come from a position of great power and authority and humbled in order simply to do you. Philippians puts it so beautifully. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though Pilate is passive, too concerned with people-pleasing, we see that Jesus leaves his comfort, becomes a servant, humbles himself to pursue a relationship with you and me. Jesus pursues you. And let me just end on this last note. Never has Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 been so true, shone so clearly that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And if on this day of all days with so much evil going on, with these three big groups of people working hard to make this day evil Friday, if this day of all days we can trust that God's sovereign hands can make any day good, that he can cover all the tragedies and horrors of our lives. Romans 8:32 Since God himself did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things for our everlasting good? God wrote good on the worst day of all of history. There's not one day, one week, one month, one year, one lifetime no amount of pain, no trauma, no loss that God cannot write good on. As crazy as that seems, we have such beautiful proof of it in Jesus. Satan and sinful man worked hard to make this day evil, but God meant it for good, and that is why we call this Friday Good Friday. So we're going to finish up by um, having... Um, as I'm sure you're aware, Larry's been asking for volunteers to come and read John 3.16. So if you're one of them, please stand and come up on stage now. We do this to celebrate the God who died in our place to reunite us back to him. This verse is a beautiful summary of what Easter is all about, what Christianity is all about. And I love being a cross-cultural church that uh, we have... So many people from all these different places all over the world that speak different languages and um, we're simply going to be reading John 3.16 in different languages. Yeah, come down a little bit. Keep coming, keep coming. I'm going to go first and then we're going to go down the line. So um, let me start. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Porque tanto, eh, oh, sorry. Porque tanto amó Dios al mundo que dio a su Hijo unigénito, para que todo el que cree en Él no se pierda, sino que tenga vida eterna. Oui, Dieu a tant aimé le monde qu'il a donné son Fils, son unique, pour que tous ceux qui placent leur confiance en lui échappent à la perdition et qu'ils aient la vie éternelle. Sapagkat ganun na lamang ang pagsinta ng Diyos sa sanglibutan, 
na ibinigay niya ang kanyang bugtong na anak upang ang sino mang sa kanya ay sumambalataya ay huwag mapahamak kundi magkaroon ng buhay na walang hanggan. Tandaiga putra na nalgawan takawan ang Devon Dogate walarigadiyam snehichu. Amanil Vishusikin uruwinam nasikyadirikyuanam awar kanitijiwin labikyuanam bende Devon tanda magane alogatilikaychu. Perché Dio ha amato tanto il mondo da dare il, il, il suo unico figlio, che, perché chiunque crede in lui non perisce ma abbia vita eterna. As everyone goes and takes a seat, everyone stand and I just thought it'd be a nice way to all say it. Yeah, please. I just thought it'd be a beautiful way for us to all say it together as we head into this next song. We join me. For God so loved the world. That he...